The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. You're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the web. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity, From Victim to Victor, and The Complete Idiot's Guide to Recovering from Identity Theft. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, O'Reilly Factor, and many other shows, including her own 90-minute PBS television special, Protecting Yourself in the Information Age. To learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy. Hey, Mari, what's our show about today? Well, our show is about privacy and the U.S. Patriot Act. And if you recall, after 9-11, the, the huge scare that we had about our own security the Congress put together the U.S. Patriot Act, and at that time, everyone was so worried and so scared that it was done in such a hurry that from many of us, uh, at least from our perspective, the privacy issues were really not addressed in a way that was healthy for a democracy. But today we are going to be interviewing Steve Posner, who is the author of Privacy Law and the U.S. Patriot Act. And I have this book, this treatise, right in front of me. And it's pretty fascinating what he's gone through and all the work that he's done in putting this together. And that's just the beginning. So I want to tell you a little bit about our, our wonderful guest today, Steve Posner. He is the author of the annually updated legal treatise, Privacy Law and the U.S. Patriot Act. And this is by LexisNexis and Matthew Bender that first came out in 2006, and it's going into its fifth edition. This treatise emphasizes the practical implications, the burdens, and the options for organizations and individuals who are cooperating with and they're subject to government, the evolution, and the requirements of reporting because there are lots of reporting requirements. And this also deals with information requests and surveillance with regard to the U.S. Patriot Act. Steve Posner frequently speaks on privacy and national security law to professional and community groups, as well as to undergraduate and graduate-level university classes. So this is great that he is right on our campus, at least by phone. He writes frequently online commentaries and blogs on emerging issues regarding litigation for LexisNexis, which is a huge company that publishes uh, legal books and legal treatises, as well as many, many other forms of their business. Steve Posner is a former editor of the Technology Law and Policy Review column for the Colorado Lawyer Magazine and former co-chair of the Colorado Bar Association's Law and Technology Issues. And he is admitted to practice law in California, here in New York, Colorado. And he's in private practice in beautiful Evergreen, Colorado. And he focuses on privacy, surveillance, intellectual property, which would include copyright and trade secrets, and business law and litigation. And you can find out a lot more about him on our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, where you can see his picture and his bio. 
But also you can go to his website at Posner Law, that's P-O-S-N-E-R-L-A-W dot com. Thank you so much for joining us, Steve. Oh, it's my pleasure. Well, Steve, I have this treatise in front of me, and you got to tell me, boy, this looks like a tremendous amount of work. How is it that you got into writing this? I was asked to do it by LexisNexis. It came about in an odd way. Uh, when the Patriot Act was first promulgated, I had uh, a, a visceral reaction, as I think a lot of folks must have, because I had grown up in the era of Miranda and Brady and other decisions that limited government power. And I had been told in elementary school that uh, the president works for me and uh, the government is not above the law. And so my initial reaction was, boy, this is a huge change. Can they do this? Right. And I started just looking at it, you know, because the first question is, what is this? Because there were an awful lot of things that they were going to do. There were some 60 provisions in the Patriot Act, all affecting other laws. And the Patriot Act is not a, does not exist in the U.S. Code as a contiguous set of statutes. You know, it, it tweaked an awful lot of statutes in the areas of uh, intelligence surveillance, in the areas of uh, bank uh, records, uh, what people have to uh, provide in order to get hazardous material licenses. So I st- just started looking at all this. And I started looking at state laws as well and just compiling a database on state laws. Well, I happen to have a question uh, for LexisNexis about their billing practices, and I wound up talking to a vice president, and we wound up talking about this database I was putting together, and I just offered it to them because I didn't know exactly what I was going to do with it. And they said, well, you know, we've got our own database, thank you very much, but how would you like to write a treatise for us? <laughs> and that's how it happened. Right. And the more I got into it, the more fascinated I became. And, you know, it's so interesting that LexisNexis has its own huge database. They've, they've bought out ChoicePoint, and so they have a, a huge amount of information about all of us in this country, too. So that's uh, interesting as well because the government can get that, can buy that from... Lexus Nexus, so it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of ironic. But um, if you talk about, you know, a lot of people obviously haven't read the Patriot Act because it's it's long, it's huge, it's challenging to understand. Would you say that surveillance is a huge issue? And kind of talk about that with regard to the U.S. Patriot Act. Well, sure. The USA Patriot Act uh, was the beginning of a major sea change in this country. There were pretty strict limits on what the government could do and the circumstances under which the government could do it before the Patriot Act. But since the Patriot Act, there have been a number of other uh, surveillance-related laws passed, uh, the Homeland Security Act, the uh, Intelligence Reform and Terrorism Prevention Act, or just a couple of them. Mm -hmm. And it continues to evolve. So, you know, to to call what I'm doing here uh, privacy law in the USA Patriot Act, you know, it's sort of an obsolete title, and I hope, and I've been promised that at some point it's going to change, but uh, it really ought to be called post-11 uh, surveillance and privacy law, post-9-11, I should right. say, surveillance right. and privacy law. Uh, there are an awful lot of ways in which the government and corporate entities and the government through the corporate entities uh, get information about people. And there are a lot, uh, there are a couple of different areas that govern the sorts of information that the government can really be interested in. You know, there, there used to be a very clear split 
between intelligence investigations and criminal law investigations. And now the rules for sharing information among those functions are not really as clear as I would like. They're, they're, but there are a number of different subject areas as well. There's financial information, educational information, uh, information that is uh, transmitted over the Internet, information that is transmitted over the telephone, information that's transmitted over the airwaves. There are different types of information involved in each of those communications. For example, there is the contents of a telephone call, then there's the routing information that surrounds uh, the telephone call. If you're using a cell phone, there is locational information because you can be triangulated by the uh, cell phone towers. Right. And there are different ways of treating that information with regard to when the government has a right to ask for it. And the judgments about when the government has that right can vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. They vary depending on the information that the government is seeking, the exact type of information. They vary according to uh, whether a particular judge regards, let's say, a cell phone as a tracking device or as something else. And then there are all the questions about what happens to that information once the government obtains it, because all the laws, all the questions that people have asked over the years have always had to do with how the government gets it. And I think that is because classically, if somebody uh, taped a phone call, there was a tape, and that tape had a chain of custody. It would go from place to place, and then it would be used in a particular kind of proceeding, but now everything is digitized. Right. And so it can be spread around and shared and uh, potentially manipulated or changed. And then it has to get into a proceeding of some sort. You know, there are different administrative proceedings you know, that have different evidentiary requirements or limitations. Then there are the courtroom proceedings. And there are a chain of custody issues that are almost impossible to answer. And then you have the countervailing issues of government secrecy so that the you know, defense counsel can only get limited access to things. And there are all these different rules that are developing and changing and fluctuating. And I'm trying to keep track of it and make sense of it in some sort of coherent way. It's not the sort of thing that necessarily um, easily lends itself to that kind of inquiry. But I'm trying because yeah. I feel that somebody has to. And it's evolving, and ch like you said, and changing. And how about, you know, we have the, the uh, Privacy Act, and, and how does that relate to, to the U.S. Patriot Act, you know, where, you know, government isn't supposed to have any private databases? What, what about that? What about that? Well, it's not so much that the government is not supposed to have any databases about individuals. It's that the government, in theory at least, is supposed to let us all know what those are going to be. Right. I meant secret ones. Yeah. <laughs> all right. And you know, the, then there are, there are the publicly announced ones. Right. And then there are almost certainly certain, you might call them black systems, you know, things that are off the typical citizen's radar screen because they're classified. Or, you know, for all I know, some of them might not even fit into the classified scheme. But the Privacy Act basically says that, you know, we're supposed to be told what systems are out there, uh, what the government intends to do with the information, how long the government intends to keep the information. Uh, and not all the systems make it into that list. Uh, 
information about government systems uh, tends to be published in two forms. Number one is – actually, three forms. Number one is the uh, system of records notice, which is published in the, in the Federal Register. And that has the kind of description that I just provided to you. Then there's also the privacy impact assessment. And government agencies are required to publish privacy impact assessments with regard to a number of these systems, but they only started having to do that in the last few years. Before that, they didn't have to do that. And that's supposed to tell us, again, what they assess their privacy impacts as being. some of the government agencies are better at publishing these than others. Probably Homeland Security is the one that pays the most attention to the requirement and does the best job. But we need to understand that the budget allocated to the privacy offices is very small compared to the uh, budget for the development of the systems themselves. and. Mm. It's not completely clear to me how they keep track of all these. Now, in the the new version of the treatise, the one that's going to be published next year, I've started to actually catalog, or at least to attempt to catalog, all the the government systems that do keep track of individuals in one form or another, excluding, you know, really basic human resource systems and things like that that don't really matter. But again... The goal is to gather this information and have it available for those who may need it in one place. And it's not that the government is trying to hide the information necessarily, but it's so scattered about the different agencies that, in a sense, it's hidden in plain sight. Have you been looking into the database with TSA and the watch lists and and all that? Yes, I have. Uh, And again, those evolve as well. There are different lists that are kept by different organizations within the government. Uh, If you talk about lists, they have different degrees of danger associated with them. Mm -hmm. For example, there's the uh, Foreign Terrorist Organization list, which is very small. There are approximately 50 groups on that. And if you're on one of these lists, If you're on the foreign terrorist organization list, for example, uh, there are a lot of things that the government starts to do as a matter of course. It will freeze your assets. It will uh, make you will be more subject to surveillance. Uh, People who materially support that organization, whether they actually know it's a foreign terrorist organization or not, are subject to criminal prosecution under the material support laws. Mm. Uh, There are different hoops depending on what list you are on, that you have to jump through in order to hopefully get removed from a list. And then there are the actual functional problems, you know, where these lists may have some of the same names on them, and uh, the information that they have is inconsistent. But the, the communication required to make all the information consistent doesn't exist yet. And that's where we get into the information-sharing environment, which is something the government has been developing since 2004. And that's where information is going to be more easily shared in these systems uh, because they're going to be developed and supervised under one umbrella, so to speak. And so 
you know, there are those who believe that the best uh, feature of government is its inefficiency. <laughs> and the more efficient this sort of effort becomes, uh, I suppose we may be protected better from terrorist activity. On the other hand, uh, the more information is available that can potentially be misused should the government ever go rogue. And I'm not saying that so far it has tried to right. go rogue. You know, it has really been relatively restrained in most cases in the way that it is treating people. You know, I, I give it credit compared to other regimes that I've read about. Right. The the scary one that I hear a lot about, at least, is the, you know this the watch list and the no fly list and how do you get off of it and. Uh, I know I have a neighbor who has a, a son that at age 15, he, ha- he has an Irish name that apparently is the same name as some terrorist from Ireland. And, um, you know, that name comes up every time. And every time he was traveling for hockey, <laughs> he got stopped. And every time it was a hassle and he almost missed the planes again. And um, it was impossible to get him off that watch list. Well, so, it's not you know so that, much that he yeah. is re- a person is removed from the watch list. It's that the, it is flagged that there is another individual out there who's got similar information. And I understand why the government would not want to simply remove a name. Right. Because you know, say you've got a perfectly innocent guy named Osama bin Laden, you right. still want to. Right. Remove Osama bin Laden from a no-fly list or from but, a... But to segregate, yeah. I mean, to, to make it that that person, you know, when you're 15 years old and, um, you know, you, you have a different middle name and you have a different social security number, obviously it's not it's not a social security number the other person had, and, and your physical characteristics are different, you would think that they could find a way to differentiate you very quickly so you wouldn't have to go through hours of trying to prove who you are and that you're not a terrorist. So I think differentiate, I understand the name may come up, but then there should be a secondary way of making it simple so that you're not you know, on this. I mean, even Ted Kennedy had <laughs> was on that list, if you recall. So, Well, I don't want to put myself in the position of you know, defending a practice like that, but given that you've got a relatively low-paid person who's working for the Transportation Safety Administration right. or Security Administration, I'm right. sorry. Mm-hmm. Um, they're working for the TSA at an airport, and they, they see something that comes up. They have a limited disc- amount of discretion. Right. And I would imagine that the danger of uh, letting somebody slip because somebody exercises his discretion wrongly is uh, considered to be great enough. So they want to establish a bunch of procedures mm-hmm. to make sure that if they're going to let somebody through, that the, the person they're letting through is not dangerous. Now, are they going about it necessarily the right way or in the minimally intrusive way? Well, probably not. I'm more concerned about you know, when they collect information about that person, where does it go? Right. What does it do? Is it going to be used to bite that person five years down the road? Exactly. Ten years down the road. Uh, that's the greater danger to me that is not really being discussed very much by the privacy protection community because it's just not been on the radar screen until the last eight or ten years. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
is yeah and and it's a real problem i have with you know i deal with a lot of people who are victims of identity theft and their background check make show a uh, a criminal violation and um and it's it's tough to deal with all of the different agencies because even if you think you've got it taken care of uh and i'm not just talking about governmental agencies i'm talking about the information brokers um this stuff you think it's taken care of and it could be replicated many times like you were talking about that when it's digitized it can be tr transferred so many different places that who knows what it's going to mean to a 19 year old guy who's a victim of identity theft later on when he can't get the job because he's got a criminal background check or he you know uh, something else he can't get an apartment and this this happened to one guy that I've been helping so you know you're right this kind of stuff uh, these databases can be used and transferred and shared and may come back to bite us many years later. So I don't know if you were thinking in that that manner, but that's how I see it, at least from the experiences that I have with my clients. Well, I am. Uh, you know, for example, there's a, oh, my God, the Suspicious Activity Report is what I'm thinking of. Yeah. Pardon my mental glitch there. That's Okay. Um, suspicious activity reports have traditionally been uh, collected pursuant to the Bank Secrecy Act. And the idea there is that if anything looks like it might be evidence of a violation of uh, the Bank Secrecy Act or any of the financial regulation laws, you know, the information is gathered up not only about the transaction and not only about the person who precipitated the transaction, but about the person who reported it, about you know, the, the supervisors, the people who made inquiries. And all this information is gathered up and sent over to the Financial Crimes Enforcement Network. And um, I believe they've recently started storing it with the IRS. And it's kept essentially forever. And it is something that can be you know, inquired of by investigative officers, you know, well into the future. And if they're putting, trying to put together some sort of circumstantial case or they're just trying to investigate you for whatever reason, you know, there are rules for the inquiry of that information. But, you know, having information like that available can be a terrible temptation. And I don't have that – I don't know that it's been grossly abused, but – and I haven't seen evidence that it has been grossly abused – but the question is, how much of it really needs to be there? Exactly. And how much of it is being gathered as an enormous sweep because of the fear that people have had prompted by 9-11? Right. And, you know, whether it's justified or not, you know, it hasn't been much revisited since 9-11, since the Patriot Act was uh, passed. Right. And I just wonder, when you have these mega, mega databases, you know, are you going to miss something? You know, if you have the databases based on, you know, reasonable suspicion, you know, probable cause or whatever, if you have those databases that, that make sense that you've really been more selective about who you put in these databases, then it would seem that it would be easier to search later when instead of having all this gobbledygook in there. You know, I don't know if that's true or not, but that just seems like, you know, it's just too much in there, and they just can't can't see the forest through the trees. Well, again, there are rules, mm -hmm. but one has to start to question whether the rules make sense. And some of the distinctions that are made 
are so fine. You know, they, they smack so much of an almost liturgical analysis of how many angels can dance on the head of a pin that it's almost impossible for the ordinary individual to know what his or her reasonable expectation of privacy is in a particular kind of information. Let me give you a couple of examples. Great. Uh, you have the cell site data cases. So those are the ones where the government has been uh, trying to get information that's associated with the, uh, per, the use of a person's cell phone. If an investigation is being undertaken under the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, because there's some national security implication, the standard of probable cause that is used is a very different standard than the standard for probable cause that's used in a criminal investigation. Right. And the logic in the distinction has generally been that in a national security investigation, uh, it often smacks of espionage or terrorism, and there's something that is very, very important to prevent. Uh, you don't want that secret to escape to Iran, because once it's out of the bag, it's out of the bag, and it can never be reclaimed. In a criminal investigation, on the other hand, uh, typically you're investigating a crime that has already happened, and the urgency is somewhat different. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So there's a different standard of probable cause there. The Patriot Act knocked down the wall between criminal and intelligence investigations, and the information goes back and forth be between the criminal investigators and the intelligence investigators with more ease than used to occur. And in information gathered in an intelligence investigation can be used in a criminal investigation. And it seems that a general rule of thumb among government agencies has always been there. You know, once one agency has it, then unless it's classified or uh, you know considered secure in some way, and it can be shared back and forth. Now there are rules for the sharing of the intelligence uh, information, just like there are rules for the sharing of the criminal investigation information. But it's not always easy to know what those are, and again, they kind of change. You know the. Turning back to the cell site information, you know, the government has been going to court in numerous jurisdictions trying to have this information deemed by judges as equivalent to the information uh, in a of a pen and trap device. You know, a pen and trap device will capture uh, the uh, the oh god, I, I should say pen register and trap and trap-and-trace devices. I call them pen-trap devices in my mind. Uh -huh. uh, but basically they gather you know, the dialing information, what number of call comes from, what information uh, number of call goes to. Uh, it's considered to be considerably less sensitive than the actual contents of a communication. Right. And so the quantum of proof that the government has to show to get an order to uh, get pen register information or trap and trace information is less than what it has to show to actually tap somebody's phone. Right. Uh, on the other hand, uh, people have been trying, have been resisting that effort and trying to have it classified as a mobile tracking device. And again, the information, the quantum of proof that the government has to produce to get that mobile tracking device uh, used against somebody is very different from that that has to be gathered uh, produced in order to prevent um, 
I'm, I'm mangling my words. No, I mean, and, and that, that, that would again. be different than... The quantum of information that has to be produced in order to get uh, a mobile tracking device order is greater than what has to be produced in order to get a pen register or a trap and trace device. Uh, the, inf the quantum of information that the government has to produce to get information stored at an ISP that is more than 180 days old is less than if it's more recent information. Hmm. Then there are distinctions, and this is a very recent issue that just showed up in the Quan uh, case in the Ninth Circuit. The information, okay, if I am an employer, subscriber, mm -hmm. and you are a remote storage uh, service provider, as opposed to a communication service provider, uh, the, in one case I can get the information, in the other case I, as the employer, can't. Uh, only the person who actually participated in the communication can get that information. But how is the ordinary employee or the ordinary citizen supposed to have any idea of all this that's going on behind the scenes and that is going on in, in the distinctions that courts are making uh, among statutes and which statute is going to apply to a given technology at a given time. You know, the ordinary person can't. The judges have trouble with this. And the attorneys have trouble with it. <laughs> well, that's right. It's an enormously complex right. set of issues, you know, depending on the kind of information, where it's kept, who's keeping it, when mm. it was uh, originally conveyed. Uh, you know, it's it's just a, an absolute minefield, you know, a yeah. swamp. And so, again, I'm trying to make sense of it for folks as best I can. Well, let me tell the folks who I'm talking to, if they've just started to turn on the radio or they're on the Internet and listening in, we're speaking with Steve Posner, who's an attorney, and he's the author of the annually updated legal treatise, Privacy Law and the U.S. Patriot Act, which I have right here in front of me. It's pretty fascinating. And we're talking about privacy and the U.S. Patriot Act. And, you know, I think this would be a good time to kind of clarify what you mean by privacy. Well, privacy has different meanings for different people. All right? Some people talk about, you know, a constitutional right of privacy and a lot of dispute among jurists as to whether that exists at all. Uh, Louis Brandeis originally defined privacy as the right to be let alone. And before him, and before it was even called privacy, there was the English common law idea that uh, you know, a person's home is a castle and it's not likely to be intruded upon. As it has evolved, you know, privacy has come to mean many different things in many different concepts, uh, contexts, I should say. Uh, but there are certain common features. You know, the idea is that it it's essentially territorial. There are, there's a boundary that the outside world is not necessarily welcome to, cr to cross. Uh, telemarketers are not welcome to call you during dinner. Mm -hmm. um, so over time, Congress and the courts have tried to figure out what the extent of the privacy right really is, and it's different in different contexts. Uh, it's different in different jurisdictions. Um, at common law, there there were four different privacy rights that the states were using, and some of the states would adopt uh, two of them or three of them or all four of them. 
then Congress began to actually codify privacy uh, with the Privacy Act of 1974, which uh, really focused for, at first on protecting certain types of information from disclosure. Uh, it became more particularly subject-oriented as pe it became more evident that people are concerned about certain types of information. There is financial information and medical information and educational information. And so we have statutes that protect those things. And then even more recently, we started getting... Uh, statutes that try, just try to keep people from being bothered. Uh, and then we've got, for example, the Telemarketing Act. And then we've got some statutes that try to protect the sharing of information by uh, private entities. You know, if, if you get a hold of somebody's financial information or that person allows you to have the financial information, what are you limited from doing? See, Although there are some constitutional privacy rights, uh, once you share your information, and this is another basic concept that seems to be consistent, once you voluntarily share your information with someone else, even if you do so under an understanding that, there is, that they are not going to share it, even if they promise you they're not going to share it, you've still given up your constitutional right of privacy. And that, uh, there's a case called U.S. versus Miller from back in the mid-'70s. Uh, there was a fellow who uh, gave certain financial information to, a, uh, I believe it was a bank, and the bank promised to keep it private, and then uh, they turned it over to the government, and the Supreme Court ruled that there's no privacy right in that in kind of information because it was shared. Mm -hmm. so You've you got to be careful about what it is you're giving out because – what the courts mean by privacy, what the statutes mean by privacy in different contexts, is not necessarily intuitive. And, and that U.S. versus Miller case is a perfect example of that. Now, that's with the government, and I, I wonder if it would be different with, you know, with having a, a giving it to another private entity. You know, we've got, if you have, like, the Federal Trade Commission will enforce privacy um, policies that say we will not share with others, obviously, except required by law, which would be the government, <laughs> right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's be probably that case was because it was a governmental en entity rather than another commercial entity. Well, it's one thing if the government subpoenas information. Right. It's another thing if the entity just decides to turn it over. Right. See, then right. they may be in breach of a contract. Right. Or they may be in breach of a statute if the uh, statute uh, has been passed. And in fact, right after that case, the statute was passed, the Rights of Financial Privacy Act. Mm -hmm. But there isn't a constitutional privacy right. Right. In Except in, in California, we do have a constitutional right to privacy. I think there's five states that have a constitutional right to privacy. But, but you're right, there isn't one in the U.S. Constitution. Well, when we talk about privacy, though, let me let me ask you something. Are privacy and surveillance kind of mere images of each other? Um, yes and no. Uh, surveillance can take place and be... If you define surveillance as how... An entity, and in particular the government, 
gets information about people without their necessarily being aware of it. And by people, I mean people or organizations or entities. Uh, Then the answer is not quite because some of the information that's going to be collected is information that's in the public domain. For example, uh, street cameras. Mm -hmm. Uh, London is full of street cameras, and we've had here in Denver a fair amount of talk about street cameras being used to prevent crime. So here you are walking around in public, uh, which is outside your zone of privacy. You know, classically, your zone of privacy was your home and the quote-unquote curtilage immediately around your house. But there you are out in public, and the government's watching you. Now, you don't know that, so you're being surveilled are your privacy rights being violated? Well, you're out there in the public square mm-hmm. conducting yourself in, in public. Other people can watch you. you know, anybody who's on the street can watch you. Right. So why can't the police? Right. So there's no reasonable expectation of privacy when you're walking down the street. Right. Exactly. So, you know, if you view surveillance in that way, then you know, they're not really mirror images, and that's probably the more timely way to, to view it. And the classic view of surveillance was of uh, the FBI or a, a, a detective wiretapping you or the stakeout where the, you know, they are sitting outside your house and even perhaps using some sort of technology to try and look in the house or you're being tailed. Mm-hmm. Now, if you were being tailed and you're again, you're out there in the streets, you know there may not be a privacy right. But but in the classic way of viewing surveillance, it was more likely to run afoul of something that people would regard as a privacy right than surveillance is today. Now that said, just because surveillance is more pervasive and can view you in more different places and in more different contexts, doesn't mean that in a lot of cases it cannot run afoul of your privacy rights. For example, there was a case a few years back where a person was driving in his car and the FBI had gotten an order uh, to, uh, in fact, I don't even think they had an order, but somehow they had gotten the purveyor of the OnStar-like system, and I don't know that it was OnStar, I don't know who it was, but there, you know, there, there's yeah, a system right. in the car where if the, uh, the driver had an emergency and you know, had a car accident you know, and pushes the button and talks to the monitoring agency, the monitoring company, and they'll send out uh, a tow truck or an ambulance, right. whatever. Or you don't even have to push the button. If you're in an accident, they can, they can say, are you there, are you there? So even if you're comatose. Right, well, <laughs> in this case, the... Um, FBI had gotten the transmission system uh, rerouted from that monitoring company to them. And they were listening to all the conversations in this gent's car. They had turned it into a bug. Right. And uh, in that one case, uh, the information, I believe, was suppressed because the FBI had gone beyond its purview by forcing the company to break its contract. But still, you know, there is a kind of surveillance that somebody might not have any reason to, to suspect could occur. There's a lot of uh, lack of transparency. I mean, when we're on the Internet, you know, that we don't know who is tracking us, whether it be the government or whom else. And right now we're talking about the government, but, you know, there, is, there are so many ways that people can track us online, 
uh, that we don't know, or like you said, like by cell phone or on any of the electronic devices that we carry, that there can be a great deal of surveillance that we is not transparent to us, right? Oh, sure. And, and it's not just the government or even a company that can do that. I, let me give you a perfect example. Oh, and then there's the bad guys, of course. Yeah. Well, and some of them aren't bad guys. Uh, here, here um, Nielsen has a, a service called Blog Pulse, and the, the website is blogpulse.com. And if you want to get an idea of uh, things that are happening on the web and what people are talking about, you can enter certain search terms, and it will actually track statistically how many blogs or blog posts over the past 30 days or 60 days or six months have mentioned that search term. Blo- so it's blogtalk.com? Blogpulse.com. Okay, blogpulse. So I've used that to uh, do some empirical research about what kinds of privacy people are actually concerned about because I figured if we're going to be advocates for privacy or we're going to study privacy, uh, you know, or even if we're going to try and you know do surveillance in some socially reasonable and acceptable way, we ought to know what people are actually concerned about as opposed to what you know, we talking heads think they may be concerned about. Right. So right. I started looking for uh, school privacy and for medical privacy and for mm. all these different types of privacy and tried to see what the trends were over the past several months with regard to each one of those. Now, that in itself is not anything that resembles surveillance, but what's interesting is that if you see a particular point there, you know, over time, you can drill down, quote-unquote, on this website, and it will actually give you access to portions of these blogged messages. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it could be possible from some of those to, you know, figure out who it is who's making these statements and then if you know, you're concerned about, you know, you want to track that trend and you want to know who's participating in that trend, it might be possible to identify people thereby. And then another list is created. That's, well, <laughs> yeah. I mean, as far as I know, nobody's actually trying to create a list of that kind, but you know, right, it's possible right. to do it. Yeah, and right. there are all kinds of ways in the digital culture to do that. Um, so wait, wait a minute. So what did you learn? What types of privacy are people most concerned about when you did that? Um, now, re- recognizing that this is the blogosphere, right? And so it, it's not necessarily a representation of the culture as a whole, but of a subset of technologically uh, hip people, say, you know, who participate in that kind of culture. Right. Um, internet privacy in the last six months has been the term most used, followed by medical privacy, and that followed closely by financial privacy and then by school privacy. Now, that's only if you use those particular phrases. You know, you can mix and match the search terms and come out with suddenly different results. For example, uh, privacy, uh, I'm sorry, financial privacy trumped medical privacy in a few cases, depending on how I set the search terms up. Right. But generally, the, the, the types that have shown up the most are Internet privacy, um, medical, financial, and school privacy. People seem to be less concerned about uh, privacy of their communications, mainly because people have this idea that, well, I haven't done anything wrong. So, you know, who's going to be looking at my communications? Right. So did you put in government privacy 
at all? Or no, because that's government secrecy. Right. If I understand right. what yeah, you're getting yeah, at. Yeah, I mean, like, um, okay. Privacy with regard to government. Right, but I've, yeah. I do have this blog on LexisNexis, and I did publish some of that uh, information uh, back in April and May, and I'm going to update it now because I, I'd like to do it in six-month intervals. Why don't you give us that URL for that blog that oh, you have? Oh, that is a tough one because it's about a zillion characters long. Oh, well, if they go to your posnerlaw.com, do you link your... Yes, okay. I do. So, so those of you who are listening, I just want to mention again that we are speaking with Attorney Steve Posner, who is the author of the annually updated legal treatise, which I have right in front of me, called Privacy Law in the U.S. Patriot Act. And you can see that he has really done some incredible research and really looking into these challenges of privacy versus security and all these issues. And you can go to P-O-S-N-E-R-L-A-W. Dot com. And you're listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. And you're listening to Privacy Piracy. And if you go to our website at KUCI.org slash Privacy Piracy, you'll also see uh, Steve's picture and a, a bio about him. And we link also to his website so you can just click right there and, and go and see and click on his blog as well. Sorry to interrupt you, but I just wanted to make sure that we see that. Oh, not at all. Okay, so state that um, that place again. Would you say it's blog? Um, I'm sorry, when you t- said that where you can set up your own searches to see what they're saying. Oh, oh, sorry. It's blog pulse. P U L S E. Yes. Blogpulse dot com. Okay, very and, good. And uh, it's a Nielsen service. Great. And it's free? Yeah, it's free. It's free. Wonderful. I, I, they have other services that are, of course, uh, paid. Yeah. And I would imagine that uh, that's one of the reasons why this one is free, just to right. bring you to those. That's great. Now, when we look at your book, Privacy Law in the U.S. Patriot Act, it, you know, and we've seen you've, you've updated it five times, um, how have our attitudes toward privacy and surveillance changed since 9-11 and and how does that relate to the Privacy Act, uh, the uh, Patriot Act? Sorry. There has been a an awful lot of changes since 9-11 you know, culturally. There's a lot more polarization than there used to be. Um, there's also a lot more fear than there used to be, and people react to it differently. Uh, there may be a, general, a generational change as well uh, that's involved with use of social media. Uh, some people believe that there really isn't much in the way of privacy that's of value. Uh, there are a lot of people who j- just put up everything on the web and figure that, well, you know, I've got nothing to be embarrassed about. And in some cases, they're right. And in other cases, uh, it will hurt them in the long run. The, the 16-year-old who puts up uh, a picture of himself you know, groping a girl while wasted you know, on, a, on some form of intoxicant is in danger of having that show up at an, on an employer's desk you know, 10 years down the road. And, and they have this misperception that if they put things up on a social networking site, that that's pretty private, even though they may not even be looking at the privacy settings. 
Well, now you, you also go to the attitudes of the people who provide these services. Mm-hmm. Some people try to respect privacy to some extent. Others have uh, very vocal about saying that you know, there really isn't much in the way of privacy anymore. And you know, they feel that they've got a perfect right, as long as the law doesn't say otherwise, to do pretty much anything they want with that information. Uh, some social networking sites have relatively simple privacy settings to use, and others you know, are, are quite complex and difficult to use, and it, perhaps intentionally so. Uh, now, that's the attitude of users. That's the attitude of commercial uh, purveyors of these services and perhaps commercial resellers of the information itself. Uh, again, different judges have different attitudes towards things. Uh, you know, Richard Posner, uh, no relation to me, but you know, I'm talking about the Seventh Circuit Appeals Court judge, you know, has you know, a really dubious view toward privacy rights of people who show up in the courtroom. Others uh, are a lot more protective. You know, here in Colorado, we have uh, a Colorado Supreme Court case that looks very carefully, for example, at you know, when people have to produce their tax returns you know, in the course of litigation. You know, others are a lot more open about that. But generally, if I had to uh, try and say how things have changed since 9-11, uh, when I was growing up, people had a certain kind of self-containment that might have come out of World War II. My father-in-law is like that. He's a very nice fellow. He's a very uh, funny guy. But there's a certain self to him, you know, and, and that self is to be inviolate. And there are an awful lot of people who are older, you know, who give off that kind of um, self-image, and, and you tend to respect it. Uh, it's a lot more varied now than I think perhaps it used to be, because there are so, people are so overwhelmed and confused by the idea that there's all this information out there and they don't know what it is and they don't know where it's going and they don't know who's got it. And and they don't so, know how corrupted it is. <laughs> yeah, they don't know whether it's wrong. They don't know whether it's being going to be misused. They don't know whether it's going to be stolen. You know, right. Internet, yeah. internet identity theft and, in fact, general forms of identity theft right. are also an area of big concern. And they're roughly comparable to financial – I should say identity theft is roughly comparable – to financial privacy and medical and medical uh, privacy yeah yeah oh it it came up also yeah and and medical identity theft and cyber identity theft yeah Yeah, yes but you know cyber identity theft tends to be financial except for when people do it for revenge and i'm seeing more of that really i haven't seen yeah 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 although i have seen people turning information over to the government in the hope that somebody will be prosecuted just because they don't like the person. Right. And that's and kind of that's, revenge, yeah. And that's another limitation, by the way, on privacy rights. You know, if an ordinary person has that information and didn't obtain it uh, as an actor of the government, you know, under, under color of state law or as a state agent, mm-hmm. then it can be used by the government. Right. Right. Huh. 
So what are some of the new ways in which the government is using information about people? Well, the most important thing is that it is is that there are fewer controls on the chain of custody of information than there used to be. You know, there's, there's this information sharing envir- environment. There are there's information gathered by intelligence agencies. There's information gathered by uh, investigative agencies. There's information gathered by other government agencies. You know, I say OSHA, and it flows around with a lot less control than it used to. So it's being gathered and stored, and hopefully, you know, the, uh, from the government's point of view, you know, used well. But it's stuff that just didn't exist before. Um, now, there's also the issue of, of data mining. Now, data mining was a big area of concern after the New York Times and USA Today broke the story of the NSA's warrantless uh, electronic surveillance uh, of telephone communications and perhaps other communications. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the thought that you know, people's telephone calls were being intercepted. There was a story about a guy who who worked for uh, one of the phone companies, I think, and he uh, actually participated in the placement of a router in a, in a telephone switch office, and you know that, that information was going to the government. So there was a lot of concern about that. And in 2007, Senator Feingold introduced a law, which passed, to uh, prevent data mining. Now, the problem has been with that statute and with the implementation of that statute has been primarily definitional. What the statute defines as data mining and what the government agencies who promulgate their own regulations, which may or may not be closely based on that statute, define as data mining is an awful lot more limited than what you and I might define as data mining. Hmm. So the statute requires that data mining systems be reported to Congress at regular intervals. But the number of systems being reported as data mining systems is smaller than one, than one would expect if one were just using a, an intuitive definition of data mining. So, so let's, let's kind of go a little bit further for all of my listeners, and we don't have a lot of time, but what if someone finds out that there is erroneous information about them in a government database? Like, you know, let's say we've talked about the no-fly list or the watch list, or there's that no-buy list, you know, which is another one that people get on. So what is your suggestion to, to correct this information? Well, where possible, and I've, start, I've started doing this in the newer edition, and I'm going to be doing it more and more. Uh, there are generally, okay, more often than not, one can go someplace to try to correct the information. Now, whether the government will accept the correction is another issue that depends on you know, their discretion, what the rules are, etc. If you know what system the information is on, and if it is a system that is publicly acknowledged to exist, then probably uh, the best thing one can do initially is 
look for the privacy impact assessment for that system. Um, it will give you an idea of whether or not the information can be corrected and what the procedures are for correcting it, or it might point you to the regulation in the Code of Federal Regulations uh, that governs that, and, and that regulation might establish the procedures. Uh, I'm trying more and more to compile uh, the information about how one goes about correcting these. Uh, it, what I've got so far is not complete by any stretch of the imagination. I'm just at the beginning of that effort now. Uh, Steve, I think you need to put together a protocol. <laughs> well, there isn't a single protocol. No, see. I know, I know. You know I, I mean, know. if you're on the foreign terrorist organization list, it's going to be much more difficult for you right. than if you are on the... Um, Watch list. Uh, the Federal Trade Commission's, you know, no buy list, or right. you know, and again, you, you got to try and figure out where this information actually is besides the list that you know about. You know, if, yeah, if you are, and then how do you the do? That? I mean, do you list, have to get a like a subpoena to say where to, what is the source of this information? Oh well, you can try. But in many cases, they're not going to tell you because the information is classified. You you don't get a subpoena. You you put in a FOIA request initially. Yeah, a Freedom of Information Act. I just want I know what FOIA is, but a lot of my listeners may not. Right. Yeah. And um, then if and you if, may not get anything back. Either. You may not get anything back. <laughs> you know, they often take a long time to respond. Right. Uh, FOIA requests are a very frequent. Uh, subject of litigation. There are a large number of exceptions to uh, the government's obligation to provide information that have to do with you know, a number of different categories. The most frequent one, of course, is, you know, well, it's classified or it's secure in some sense. Steve, uh, we're going we're gonna to have to, would you believe the hour is just about ended? My oh, I'm goodness, no, that's, I know, <laughs> you did great. Well, let me just ask you one quick question. I mean, if someone is on one of these lists and has trouble, was is that something that you would take in your law office? Is that something that you would handle, or you would refer that on? Well, I would certainly try to help somebody. You know, I think I could probably more efficiently identify, you know, what if anything can be done yeah. than other people. Other sure, people who haven't sure. Well, we're going to give your website out for those people who are listening who found out that you are in some kind of a list like that. I mean, you can go to Posner, P-O-S-N-E-R, law.com. He is a lawyer and the author of the annually updated treatise called Privacy Law in the U.S. Patriot Act. Steve, thank you so much for all of your wisdom and um, wonderful um, enlightening information that you've given us. We'll have to have you back again. Well, I just wish I had more of it to give. Oh, okay. Well, we thank you so much, and keep in touch. All right? All right. Thank you very much, Mari. It okay. was a real pleasure. All right. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM and Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. I'm Mari Frank. Join us every Monday morning from 8 to 9 right here on KUCI and visit our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy where you can see our upcoming guests Click on their website, see what they're going to talk about, and also click on the archived interviews and download podcasts. Please write us emails about what's important to you in the information age. Thank you. Bye. Stay private. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents.